If you've been keeping up with world events this week, you'll immediately recognize the, uh, the team right here. These are the, the wild boars of Thailand. Everybody, anybody familiar with these guys? Raise your hand if you're familiar with these guys. Okay, yeah, so if you're not familiar with these guys, let me get you up to speed. Um, this is a soccer team uh, in Thailand, and after a game, which is part of their normal routine, they decided to go for a walk in some caves. Uh, and unbeknownst to them, a uh, massive downpour started to happen. And when they were about a mile and a half into the cave, they realized they were trapped. Water had begun to fill in, and in many places, the, the exits were completely submerged. And what happened was an international rescue effort had to start. The costly rescue effort cost one man his life. And as I think about this soccer team, by God's grace, they were all rescued. They were all extracted through this cave. And that kind of reminds me of, of us here at Firewheel. You see, my guess is that none of you have been rescued from a cave. It's just my guess. Uh, but the reality is, we all owe people. See, those boys, they owe the people who rescued them. In my own life, I think of Mr. Rene. Now, Mr. Rene is a guy that nobody here knows because he's back in Louisiana. Well, my wife knows him, so she just raised her hand. Uh, she's always quick to point out when I'm wrong. It's one of her specialties. Uh, but anyway, nobody except Amy knows who Mr. Rene is. Uh, Mr. Rene was a scoutmaster. Mr. Rene was a guy that came alongside uh, a 14-year-old boy who was headed down the wrong path. Uh, at the time, I had been kicked out of school. Uh, my grades were literally straight Fs. Uh, I had already had a couple of run-ins with the law. I was headed down a really bad path, and I don't know what Mr. Rene saw in me, but he saw something in me that I didn't even see in me. And as I think back on that, I, I reflect on the fact that I owe Mr. Rene. And the reality is, uh, that's, that's true of you guys too. Uh, perhaps when you were starting out in business, there was a guy who's, or a gal who's a couple of years ahead of you that pulled you under their, under your, under their wings and they mentored you. They poured their life into you. Uh, they, they helped you become the person that you are today. I was talking with someone about a, a band director that saw something in some band member that they didn't even see in themselves. And, and he invested himself into them. He poured himself into them. And just as I am who I am today, to a certain extent, because of what Mr. Rene has done, we are who we are and we are where we are because people have poured into our life. And the reality is we owe them. I think also of my parents. Some of you had parents that poured into you, or perhaps it was a coach. But there's a problem with that. See, those boys, they owe the rescue team. They'll never be able to pay them back. I, I owe Mr. Rene, but as a 14-year-old kid, there was nothing I could do to pay him back. 
And I'm sure as you reflect upon the people that have poured into your life, you realize there's nothing you can do to pay them back. And so we've created an American phrase for a concept that's really as old as time. And that phrase is we pay it forward. And we know what pay it forward means. Everybody knows what pay it forward means? I experience this every once in a blue moon at Starbucks. I'll show up and I'll try to pay for my coffee and uh, the, the barista will say, no, 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 somebody, the person before you. And I'm like, I don't know that person. I know you don't know the person, but they paid for your coffee anyway. That's what paying it forward means. It means you pour the blessings that you received into someone else. That's what paying it forward means. But what does that look like for believers? What does it mean for a believer to pay something forward? See, I'm pretty sure we all agree that we owe a debt to somebody. I'm pretty sure that as believers, we all recognize that we owe a debt to Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure we all uh, understand that we can't repay that debt. So as believers, how do we pay it forward to God? That's going to be the subject that I want us to, to talk about today. Incidentally, we opened with a soccer illustration. Uh, how many people know that the World Cup's going on today? All right, all right. So how many people are super interested to know what the score is right now? All right, so we got a couple. Here's the thing. I am secure in who I am. If you need to check on the score, if you need to jump on ESPN, just make sure your phone's on silent. And we'll take a break, I promise, we'll take a break or two during the sermon. I'll tell you, it's okay to check, and you'll have a chance to check. So you can, you, you'll know, uh, who is it, France and who? Croatia. Croatia, okay. Uh, simple show of hands, who's, who's in favor of France? Anybody cheering on France? Okay, not a whole lot. Anybody cheering on Croatia? All right, so I can tell just by the show of hands here that this, the church in general is not a soccer church. But we do, have, we do have people in the church that are interested in soccer. Coming back to the sermon. Okay? As believers, we all recognize that we owe God a debt that we can't pay. We're in a series on Ephesians right now. And we saw in the first chapter of Ephesians that we have every blessing imaginable. See, we've been blessed in the spiritual realms by the Father by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. There's not a spiritual blessing that we could possibly get that we haven't already been given. In chapter 2, we saw that as a result of those blessings, that we have a redeemed past, we have a revitalized present, and we have a revolutionized future. And we're not going to have a chance to look at it but chapter 3 is essentially Paul sharing his own testimony of what these blessings and what this revolutionized future and, and revitalized present mean to him. And his, his, his response is essentially it has transformed his being. We talked about grace last week. It's important that you understand grace as we talk about Ephesians. It's by grace that you've been saved. 
It's by grace that we are blessed. It's by grace that we are redeemed. It's by grace that we are revitalized. It's by grace that our future has been revolutionized. And it's by grace that we and our beings have been transformed. Okay, And we're switching from chapters 1, 2, and 3 to chapters 4, 5, and 6 today. And so this is a hinge. And you need to understand that because what Paul has been talking about up to this point, he's only given one imperative in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that imperative was to remember something. So he hadn't actually asked us to do anything other than to think about it. He's focused on who we are in Christ. He wants us to be firmly rooted in our identity. Because right now, he's going to shift in chapter 4 to what we should do as a result of who we are. Last week, I shared with you that because of our blessings, because of how blessed we are, we should be blessing people. And today, we're going to put some flesh on that. We're going to talk about what exactly it looks like to live as blessed people. I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're not there, go ahead and start turning there. I really want us to focus on the first six verses. Because there's an attitude that you've got to pick up on in the first six verses. If you pick up on this attitude, the next what follows will make sense. But if you miss this attitude shift, nothing that follows is going to make sense. So we really need to focus on that. Uh, and then we're going to look at some spiritual gifts. And finally, I'm going to offer you a couple of different ways to practically apply the passage. So verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, now, this therefore, it's important because it ties everything that follows, everything that follows with everything that's preceded. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Paul is essentially saying because of your identity, because of who you are, because you are blessed, you should be a blessing. What you do flows out of who you are. So think about it like this. A farmer farms, right? A fisherman fishes, okay? Identity, doing. Somebody that's been blessed blesses, right? That's what Paul is doing. Paul is making this, 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 this transition from who we are at our identity to what we ought to be doing. And that's what this therefore is here for. Now, the, the, what he's asking us to do is he's urging us to walk. Now, in the Bible, when we come across walk, very rarely does it actually refer to the process of walking. See, normally, when we come across walk in the Bible, it's talking about the way you live your life. And here's the thing about the way you live your life. You didn't come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then all of a sudden go from here to the other side of the room. And you didn't get sanctified immediately. You didn't become like Jesus Christ. In fact, none of us are like Jesus Christ. We're here today. We're all messy. We're broken. We're, we're real. We wear the T-shirt. Some of you have it on right now. 
okay? To walk is to live, and to live is to go day by day by day by week by week by month by year, decade, and so forth. That's what it means to walk. And so Paul is urging. This is not a commandment. There's going to be some commandments that come in Ephesians, but this is not one of them. This is, he's, he's urging us. He's saying, in light of how blessed you are, I'm urging you with every fiber that's in my being to live this way. Because you are so blessed, you should be a blessing. You should be reflecting the glory of God that he has shown on you to the world around you. This word calling... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This idea of calling, there's a couple of different ways to understand it. So Pastor Chris is called to the pastoral ministry. Okay? He's got a special call upon his life, and that's why most Sundays he's up here preaching. That's not the sense that this word is being used. The sense that this word is being used right here is simply the state that you enter into after you've been invited to something. When you accept an invitation, you enter into this state of being called. Let me give it to you in modern English. You get invited to a party, okay? You get, you get the invitation, and it comes with, if it's a fancy party, it comes with what? RSVP, okay? Which is French for, I'm coming, okay? <laughs> So you RSVP. At the moment that you put that RSVP in the mail, you're called. You have been ex invited and you have accepted the invitation. Okay? When, when Jesus invited you to believe in him and you said, I believe by faith, you entered into a state of called. Now, some parties are fancy parties. These are not the typically the parties that I get to go to. But some parties have attire that you have to wear. They have behavior that you have to, you know, cer certain things that you have to do. And so because you have entered into the state of calling, because you have RSVP'd, now this is the way that you have to start acting at the party. All of chapters 1, 2, and 3 have been about the RSVP. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, starting here, are about how do you act. And so when he's saying live out this calling, he's saying live in response to having accepted Jesus as your Savior. Here's how you live. Walk out, walk your life, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he gives four descriptions of what it means to live that life. This isn't for additional commands. The invitation is to walk. And then what follows is an explanation of what walking looks like. In other words, this is the, the day, today, the today, today, today type stuff. The big picture is I want you to walk. I want you to live in light of your calling. The little picture, the day-to-day -day way that you do that is found in what follows. With all humility and gentleness. Now those are two words 
most people don't like in this culture, especially guys. You know, uh, guys would much rather be rough and tough than, uh, than gentle and humble. Here's what these words meant in this culture. To think lowly of yourself. To think lowly of yourself. What does thinking lowly of yourself look like? It looks like this. When you're the CEO and you walk into the room, you're not looking for the head of the table. You're looking to other people's needs. Or maybe you're not the CEO, but you're pretty close. And so you expect to sit pretty close to the head. Somebody who thinks lowly of themselves walks into a room with an other's focus. They're not focused on themselves. They're not focused on what do I need? What do I need to get out of this? They've, they've got an other person focus. That's what it means to walk with gentleness and to walk with humility, with patience. I thought I was a patient man until I got married. And then I realized I'm not a patient man. And then I had kids and realized I'm really, really not a patient man. I like to be on time. But being patient means so much more than that. And to really understand what Paul means by patient, we need to keep reading because something is presented with it in parallel. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. That's a really, really, really soft translation of what this, of what this text says. Let me give you the Eddie Coe translation. We put up with each other's crud. That's what this means. We put up with each other's crud. Now, you'll understand this. I, I bet I can mention one word, and you'll instantly understand with what I mean what it means to put up with each other and keep in mind that this is a letter to a church so this is a letter to a church family what's it mean to put up with your family's crud one word thanksgiving all right all right some of you are like eh, not so much and some of you are your heads are shaking up and down because let's face it most families got that uncle or the aunt or the in-law or and you know what chances are pretty good if you're you can't think of anyone, it's probably you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I thought that up on the spot. That's a pretty good little joke. <laughs> to put up with each other's crud, we're a church family, okay? But we're not, we're not all the way sanctified. We're not all the way like Jesus Christ. We're still taking step by step by step. We're moving in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And what that means is in my family, there are some people that do things that they drive me crazy. They aggravate me. And it's possible that within this church, there are some people who do things and say things and act ways that aggravate you. But that doesn't negate the fact that they're still part of your family. And with your family, you put up with each other's crud. That's what it means to be patient and to bear with one another. Why? Because we're eager to maintain the unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We put up with each other's stuff because the family is more important sometimes than me being individually comfortable all the time. 
And that's why when you go to Thanksgiving, you'll put up with crazy uncle so-and-so. Because crazy uncle so-and-so is still crazy uncle. He's uncle. He's part of the family. And so we deal with him. This idea of bond an interesting word it it, it is expressive of of like a rope it's actually a tendon an animal tendon and and it was used in ancient times to tie things together to unite two things into one and it's only used in this sense one other place in the bible we don't have time to look at it but i would uh draw your attention to uh, colossians chapter 3 verse 14 you don't need to turn there but in that context it's very interesting because Paul is, again, talking about an identity. He's asking, he, he, the action that he's asking people to do flow from the identity. In that text, he says, because you are forgiven. Because as believers, we are a forgiven people. We are sinful people, but we are forgiven. Because you are forgiven, you ought to be forgiving people. And then he goes on to say, above all else, put on love, which binds everything. You see, love is are, the handcuffs. It's the rope that ties this family together. And unlike some of our thanksgivings, this is not a fake unity. This is not a false unity. This is not a a pseudo-unity. Some of you know what I mean by this. Some of you, for some of you, Thanksgiving is the time when you leave people that you love to go hang out with family that you haven't seen in five years. You hang out with a bunch of people that they're family, but you ain't seen them in five years, and you're not particularly close to them. And if you're honest with yourself, what you'd rather be doing is having a barbecue back home with your friends. That's not the kind of unity that Paul's talking about here. The unity that he's talking about here is more expressive of what you got going on with your friends. Look at the next couple of verses. It it explains the basis of our unity. We're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. One of the reasons we're united is because we're all part of the same body. Now, locally, if you're here today, you're probably a, you're part of what we've got going on here at Firewheel. But in a larger global sense, we're all part of the body of Christ. We're all part of the church. There's one spirit. Doesn't matter if you're a believer here, if you're a believer in Ethiopia, if you're a believer in Spain, Croatia, France, wherever. Incidentally, if you need to check on the score, three minutes, is that enough time? It's over? Who won? France. France won. So, there you go. Incidentally, what it, it, it's, the, it's one spirit. We're called to one hope. We belong to, we have one call. We have one Lord. One faith. One baptism. This word baptism here, it's not talking about water. That's one of the meanings of baptism. What baptism means at its core is an identity thing. It's a clothing term. You take a white piece of cloth and you dip it into a vat full of red dye or purple dye or whatever color dye is. You baptize it. 
And when that cloth comes out, it is fundamentally changed. What once was white is now purple or whatever other color is your favorite color. As believers, we have been fundamentally changed from lost people to believers. We're all united. And so this unity that we have should be expressive of that unity that we have because we've all got the same father. We've all got the same brother, Jesus Christ. We've all got the same spirit. We're all part of the same family. And we ought to be acting in a united way. But there's an important point that flows out of this that you've got to understand. And it's bad grammar, I know, up front. I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, I told you last week that I'm not good with grammar. But this, this expresses what I want it to express, so I'm going to use it anyway. Here's the principle. Living in love requires a we not me attitude. Living in love requires a we, not me attitude. You need to understand this principle because in the book of Ephesians, love is a central theme. The word itself and its derivative occur 22 times. Over 15 of those occurrences happen in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Okay? Acting out of love flows from an attitude that's focused on we, not me. Counselors will tell you, if you love with a me focus, they call that codependence. Okay? What, what codependence means is, is I, I'm going to love you, I'm going to act like I love you, I'm going to do something for you, but I expect something in return. Okay? That's not the type of love that we're talking about here. And, and that's why it's so important that we understand our identity in Jesus Christ because everything we have is by grace. We didn't earn a single blessing that we'd have. We didn't earn a single bit of our status, our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And if we try to act like, if we try to love like it depends on us, we will end up being codependent. Amy and I experienced this about 10 years in our marriage. I mentioned that I had a really rough time in junior high. Didn't have any friends either. Partly because I was being a jerk and partly because I, just, I, I was in a lot of trouble all the time. And so I really struggled with acceptance. I really wanted people to accept me. I really wanted people to like me. And, and I didn't realize this at first, but I brought that into Amy and I's marriage. And at about the 10-year uh, point, we had a counselor pointed out to us, Eddie, you're expecting her to love you unconditionally. You're expecting your wife to accept you unconditionally, and that's something that she can't bear. And so that's setting me up for disappointment, and that's setting her up for failure. I have to get that unconditional love and that unconditional acceptance, it has to come from God because he's the only one big enough to fill that void. And when I'm getting that from God, I am free to let Amy love me the way that she wants to love me. I'm free. Because you see, me is a tyrant. And if I'm loving with a me focus, I'm loving, I'm loving a tyrant. 
He's never going to be satisfied. But if I can get my focus off of me and onto we because of who I am in Jesus Christ, because I already have everything that I need, I am now free to love and to serve the rest of you with no strings attached, which is what true love is. That's the kind of love that put Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the kind of love that says, for he so, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we would do something. No. Because he loved us. That was it. No strings attached. That's what grace means. And it's from this launching point that Paul goes into a discussion of, some, of various spiritual gifts. Uh, I want us to very briefly look at this. Look at verse uh, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. Okay, this is expressed, we don't do this in modern warfare because for political reasons, but in ancient warfare, when you invaded a nation and you defeated that nation, you got everything. You got the land, you got the people, you got the riches, you got, you got the animals, you got everything. And, and good kings, what they would do is when they would vanquish a, a, a property is they, they would take it and they would give it out to people. That's grace gifts. Because he's the king. He can do what he wants. He could put it all in his treasury and that would be entirely within his rights. But instead, he, here, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Jesus, our king, came down from heaven and he got in a fight. And he went to war with Satan and he went to war with the flesh and he whooped them. Okay? They thought that they won, but then on the third day he rose again and he's ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he has all power. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What that means is because we are united with him and that's where he is, we have authority over the enemy. We have authority over the flesh. Because of who we are in Christ, because of how we are blessed, we have authority. And, and what Paul is, is he's driving out here is that we would live out that authority that we would recognize that the gifts that we have are from God. They're from Jesus. We didn't come up with them on our own. If you've got a talent, he gave it to you. If you've got a gift, he gave it to you. Why? Let's continue. Uh, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. We don't have time to dig into the details of uh, apostles and prophets and all of that. Let me suffice to say right now that there are certain people that seem to have a special call on their life. When I say that, I think immediately of Chris Carroll. Chris Carroll has an obvious purpose here at this church to be on this stage most Sundays proclaiming the word of God to us. That's his calling. But again, when we say calling in this part of Ephesians, we're not talking about what Chris has here. It's to equip the saints. That's everybody. That's all of us. If we're believers today, we are saints. And who does the ministry? The saints or the staff? The saints 
right? So, so the staff, the elders, they exist in leadership positions to equip everybody here for the work of the ministry. The ministry shouldn't be accomplished only as a result of what Chris is doing or what Stephen is doing or what the elders are doing. The ministry should be happening as a result of what the saints are doing, of what we are all doing. Why? Jump all the way down to verse 15. This is the purpose. Rather, speaking the truth in love. And that's an incredibly hard concept to translate, speaking the truth in love. The, the, the verb literally means truthing. But there's no English word for truthing. So they say speaking the truth in love. It just means living your life as it's, it's dripping with truth in love. We are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's our purpose. We, we are to use our gifts. We are a body. We are, we are a group of believers. And granted, just like any family, some of us don't get along with others, but we strive for unity. Not for superficial unity, not for unity for the sake of unity, but unity because we're all on the same mission. We're all walking in the same direction. We're all trying to grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ. I heard one old saint one time say something to the tune of, uh, you might as well learn to get along with your fellow believer because you're going to spend eternity with them. So you might as well just learn to work, get, work, through, work with it right now. You see, we're, 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 we're united, but we're not uniform. We're not all the same. I like to speak in public. I like to preach. Chris is really good at it, okay? I can't sing. If, if I had to take Stephen's place, y'all would leave immediately. You could, you could ask Amy. I can't even, like, some people can sing in the shower, but nowhere else. I can't even sing in the shower. The water just stops. It's like, quit it. <laughs> you, you, you just stop. You, know, you got gifts elsewhere. Use those gifts elsewhere. But that's part of what it means to exercise our gifts. We, we use our gifts for the edification of the church to build up the body that we have here. Let me ask you a question as we move towards uh, closing and application. Where do bodybuilders spend a lot of time? Okay, why do bodybuilders spend a lot of time at the gym? They're trying to build up their muscles. So bodybuilders spend a lot of time at the gym building up muscles. Blessed people should spend a lot of time in the world blessing people. We should exercise our gifts to blessed, blessed people. We should exercise our gifts to build up the body. Bodybuilders go to a gym. Believers go to a church. They both exercise, one of them with the ultimate mean of, of, of adding muscle to their body, the other one with, with adding to our body. Not just people. I'm not just talking about increasing numbers. I'm talking that we would grow in our maturity. So that we wouldn't be childlike in our faith. You guys remember the Stranger Danger uh, commercials that used to come on in the 1980s? Okay? It, it, you'd always tell the kids, 
don't go hang out with strangers. And, and how would the stranger get the kid to come? Candy, right? Why would a kid be tempted by candy? Because they're easy to manipulate. We're growing towards maturity in Jesus Christ so that we're not easily manipulated like kids. Spiritually speaking, we, we ought not be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. By every person that comes on TV and says, Jesus loves you uh, and here's why. We, we ought to be able to, to pick up when someone says, you know, the Bible really teaches that, uh, you know, to give a man a, a fish is to feed him for a day. To teach him to fish is to feed him for a lifetime. Except that doesn't occur in the Bible. That's not biblical. Maybe some of the principles are tied to it, but that statement does not come from Scripture. And we ought to be at a place in our walk towards being like Jesus that we can pick up on statements like that and say, wait a minute, Pastor Eddie, that doesn't come from the Bible. That's what it means to grow. And the place that we grow, just like a bodybuilder goes to a gym to build muscle, uh, bodybuilders don't build muscle by meeting, reading Muscle Magazine. Okay? We can only build ourselves to a certain extent by reading the Word of God. We can know about it, but not truly experience and not truly understand it. Serving, serving within this body and serving within this community is where we grow. And if we want to grow in our maturity, if we want to grow in our Christ-likeness, that's what it takes. Moving towards close now, let me give you a couple of real practical ways to apply this. First off, since I've been using a bodybuilding illustration, uh, let, me, let me point out, not everybody's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay? Just, you, you, don't have to be, you don't have to go to the gym with the goal of becoming Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, that's who the muscle guy was when I was growing up. I didn't even know who the muscle guy is now. I'm pretty sure it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who's the muscle guy now? Okay, so, yeah, maybe, I don't know, Wolverine or something like that. But you don't have to necessarily be that guy just because you're going to the gym. You see, some of us have an incredible gift. You can be an evangelist. You can share your faith with people without being Billy Graham. You don't have to be a superstar. You can just use the gifts. You can use the muscle. You can use the ability, the, the capacity that you have without necessarily being like Billy Graham. When I think of people who use their gifts in this body, I think of Kevin. Does everybody know Kevin? If you don't know Kevin, you know Kevin. Let me tell you who Kevin is. Kevin's the guy that's always got a smile on his face. Okay? He, he stands out there in the foyer, and if you walk in the door, you see Kevin. And Kevin's got a smile on his face, and he's going to be shaking your hand. He's going to be waving at you. He's going to be making you feel welcome. He's got the gift of hospitality, among other gifts. But that's what it means to use our gifts in a way that edifies the body. I know some of you, you're shy introverts. That's not your ministry. You probably shouldn't be in the welcoming committee. But there are other places that you could serve. 
one place that comes immediately to mind is our children's ministry. God has really blessed our children's ministry over the past half a year. We, we have really seen a growth. We have seen an increase. And, and frankly, we're in need of help. Now, I'm not making a plea. I'm not begging you to come help us because we need help. I'm just pointing out to you that because of how blessed you are in Jesus Christ, if you're good with kids, or if you think you might be good with kids and you'd like to explore that, contact Leah. And listen, let me tell you a secret. She's not going to immediately put you in charge of fifth grade boys and ask you to make a two-year commitment. Okay? That's not how this is going to work. She'll give you, why don't you come visit for a day? Why don't you come shadow somebody for a day? Learn. Exercise. See if this is something you're talented at, if this is something that you're gifted at. And if it is, then we'll, put you, we'll plug you into that role. Another thing that comes to mind is Soul Church. Again, that's something that Kevin's in charge of. Uh, most of you know about Soul Church, so I'm not going to give you a bunch of details. But essentially, that's our ministry that we have to homeless people. People who are down on their luck for one reason or another. Blessed people like us ought to be blessing people. For some of you, somebody poured themselves into your life when you were a kid. All I'm asking you to do is consider doing that for someone else. For some of you, you were down on your luck. There was a time in your past where you really needed a handout and, and somebody was able to help you. Blessed people ought to be blessing people. Perhaps you're interested in teaching. Maybe that's a gift that you'd like to begin exploring. Uh, I want to encourage you to contact Barbara Brown. Chris will be back from his sabbatical in a few weeks, and he will start a class on how to teach. And if that's something that you're interested in, write this stuff down. Write, these contact, write this contact information down so that you can be a part of what we're doing here at Firewheel. Blessed people. Bless people. This is just a couple of different ways that you could bless. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. I thank you for the way that, uh, that Paul constructed Ephesians. I'm so grateful that what I do, what we do as a body of believers, flows out of who we are and not the other way around. We would be in a world of hurt if our blessings were contingent upon our own actions. I thank you for loving us first. I thank you for freeing us of the tyranny of me. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear where we can serve each other in our church today. Lord, I lift up our children's ministry. I lift up Soul Church. I lift up the greeting ministry. I lift up the parking ministry. I lift up all of the other ministry areas that we have at this church. Lord, I pray that you would lay on some people's hearts right now to be a part of each one of those ministries. Lord, not simply for the fact that they can be there, but because they need to be there. We need them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Chris.